book of James in the New Testament, chapter 4. As you do so, uh, frequently, if you've been coming here at all for any matter of time, you recognize in our liturgy that we, we always spend a portion of our time uh, leading up to the sermon in the Testament that we're not preaching in. And so we talk about the fact that this is this is one story of God's redemptive purposes. This is the whole counsel of God. And so I wanted to start this morning by another Old Testament passage. I've been working my way in the last few weeks through the book of First Chronicles. You may not be as familiar with that as the book of James. Uh, but, it, but it tells, in short, among other things, um, this time period in Israel's history in which the mantle of leadership is being passed from Saul onto David. And so it comes to the end of Saul's life, and he's in a battle, and he gets killed. And what happens before that is pretty fascinating. He's supposed to be discerning God's will for Israel. And he's supposed to be waiting on one of the prophets of God to come and to give him God's wisdom. And he gets impatient. And so he goes and seeks the counsel through a medium, through what we would call a witch, and this is very interesting, what the writer of First Chronicles tells us about Saul's death. First Chronicles 10. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David the son of Jesse. He did not seek guidance from the Lord, therefore. It's like a one-to-one relationship in the, writer, in the writer's mind. And I, and I don't suggest in any way, shape, or form that James is threatening us today with being run through with a sword. It's not the point of the sermon today. But I do think that he wants to highlight this same biblical truth that even the writer of Proverbs tells us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And what James wants us to see today, that God offers us instead wisdom, guidance, and a path towards life. So let's read together James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the text today, it's very tempting for us to see some of these passages in James' letter, Lord, and think, why why is that so important? Of all the things that James could be writing to us about, why this? And yet, Father, we believe that your sovereign hand, Lord, has guided the scriptures and that today you want to speak to us about this. At the heart level, Lord, Why is it that we are a people that are so prone to wander away from your guidance and your direction, Lord? Father, I pray that if anything is false that comes from my mouth today, Lord, that it would simply fall away. And that whatever is true, it would remain, Lord. The people here today do not need to hear my opinions, but they need to hear from you, Lord. 
I pray the truth of your scriptures, Lord, would not just be mere intellect for us today, Lord, not just knowledge building, but it would take root in our hearts where it would bear fruit and that we would be a people, Lord, that would leave this place looking more like Christ than when we first arrived. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I spent some of my week this, uh, this week reading a series of articles written by folks from all sorts of faith, uh, faith traditions, non-faith traditions, about what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? In one letter in particular I was struck by, this writer says, The sun comes up and I have a chance to be kind to anyone who crosses my path because I can. I make that choice for myself and nobody has to tell me to do it. I am right with myself. I try my best to do my best, and if I fail, I try again tomorrow. I support myself in my own journey through life. I draw my own conclusions. I find joy in the people I love. I love and I am loved. I find peace in the places I visit. I cry when I listen to music I love and find almost childlike joy in many things. This world is brilliant and full of fascinating things. I have to think carefully for myself. I don't have to believe what I'm told. I must ask questions, and I try and use logic and reason to answer them. I believe that every human life carries equal worth. I struggle with how difficult the world can be, but when we have free will, some people will make terrible decisions. No deity forces their hand, and they must live with that. And what struck me about that, obviously written by an atheist, And I don't know if you had this experience as you read through it, but I thought to myself just how many people I know who would name the name of Christ, be followers of Jesus Christ, who could write the same exact letter. That that really is their general perspective on the world and the kind of life that they are living, that they are, in essence, practical atheists. That that God is this theoretical idea who's out there somewhere, but in my day-to-day decisions, how I actually live my life, it is as if God makes no difference at all. James here is writing specifically to Christians. And when we are thinking about our choices on a daily basis, is it just merely what I want to do? what brings me joy, what brings me happiness, meaning and contentment without any thought at all about what God may have planned for my life and yours. That's what James wants to deal with today and he begins for all of us with this warning. A warning about presumption. That's our first point. He draws our attention to presumption. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And I am sure that in a crowd like this, that most of you right this very moment could pull out your phone. You could pull out some sort of planner, whatever it is, your calendar that sort of keeps track of what's going on in your life. And you could show me the next week. You could show me the next month. You might show me the next six months. Some of you are OCD. You probably could show me the next year, right? All color-coded, where the kids have to be, where I have to be, this trip, that trip. Because we are a people, I don't like this term, but this is true. It's in the air that we breathe. We are a people who like to maximize, right? Maximize. In fact, just for kicks and giggles, I took that word, I opened up Amazon, and I put it in their book section. Just that word, maximize, right? Just give you a sampling of some of the things that we want to maximize in our life right now. This is just the first page, unedited, right? 
Maximize your social security. Maximize your healing power. Maximize your manhood. Maximize your coaching. Maximize your Medicare. And my personal favorite, I don't even know what this means. Maximize your hormones. (laughs) We're maximizers. We love books, podcasts, articles, websites, full of all sorts of life hacks. Tips on time management and productivity, efficiency, leveraging our full potential, right? Constantly packing in the most activity into every nook and cranny of our lives. And we are planners. And so we asked James this morning, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Why not live that way? Isn't that the best use of our time? And in one sense, James would say, nothing. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. And yet in another sense, he will also tell us, everything is wrong with that. But first, nothing. We have the words of Jesus himself from Luke's gospel in chapter 14. Jesus himself says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Right? Think about it before you start something. And we don't have time to go into all the details of it, but we know this that Moses made plans for certain. David made plenty of plans. Nehemiah made plans. The apostles made plans. God himself is a God who has made plenty and plenty of plans. Making plans is not the problem, James would say. It's how we make them. So in another sense, he says, everything is wrong with the way that we're doing this. For one thing, he says, there's a practical consideration. He just tells us, and this is just wisdom, right? You do not know what tomorrow will bring. That's just practical, friends. You make dinner plans, someone gets sick. You plan a family vacation and the car breaks down. Right? When I was uh, working internationally, I can't tell you how many times we would plan for weeks and weeks and weeks, sometimes months, getting visas, getting plane tickets, and then a coup would break out, or a civil war, or Ebola would strike some country, and all of our plans would be dashed. And I would say for all of us now, we understand it in a different way. If COVID taught us nothing, right? If we didn't learn anything else, we certainly all learned this, that your plans will be interrupted, One of our youngest son's favorite story to talk about that time period is he had waited all year for the big class trip to Florida. It was over spring break, COVID hits, and what he had to do instead was sit in our living room on the couch and watch a PowerPoint presentation of all the places he would have been going that week. It was worse than just nothing at all. Painful, right? Many of you miss weddings, funerals, graduations, concerts, sporting events and James comes and says you do not know what tomorrow will bring and so there's a very practical word of wisdom here reminding us to to hold our future plans very lightly but I think there's something deeper here that he's writing to each one of us that hits a little bit closer to our own hearts and it's those words that we all hate to hear you are not in control if you're a person there this morning who might be Wondering whether you are one of those people that has issues with control, just ask yourself or someone close to you, how do I handle it when things don't go according to plan? When plans have to change, don't happen on my timeline. And I want you to be honest. One of the questions for our community group this week, what is really going on there? 
when that happens, when that sort of explosive, like whatever that is for you, sadness or rage or anxiety or depression, irritability that comes out of you when plans go awry, what's really going on there at the heart level? If you are someone who cannot emotionally handle it when plans change, when you don't know what tomorrow will bring, if it infects your entire mood, your whole countenance, all of your relationships, James is asking, what's really going on down there? The surface of your heart. And James would say to each one of us that it reveals arrogance. There is a pride welling up in your heart. James tells us that as it is, you boast in your arrogance. That your kingship of your own private kingdom is being challenged. Your inability to control things is being exposed and you rage. I'm sure some of you are familiar with uh, the famous poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. I, I confess that I almost just only know the final two lines, but I spent time reading the whole thing. I probably read it 20 or 30 times this week, just struck again and again just how in your face it is about this rabid individualism. I'll read it. It's brief. He says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgings of chance. My head is bloodied, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and, and shall find me unafraid. And then the line that many of us know. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a bit of a war cry for American individualism, isn't it? And I got to confess, I, I sort of like tested myself. I just kept reading it. Again, 20, 30 times I read it this week. And without fail, every single time I read it, there was something inside of me that wanted to stand up and cheer. Every time. I know it's some of the worst theology ever penned. And everything within my chest would still want to explode with this enthusiasm. Why is that? Friends, that is in my DNA, and it is in your DNA, deep within you. It's at the very heart of every single human being who has ever walked this earth because it's the very thing that our first father and mother said as they stood at the base of that tree shaking their fist up to God. I am the captain of my fate. And James says, Arrogance, absolute arrogance. You make plans as if you are in control without reference to the God who made you. It is boastful. It is foolish pride welling up inside of you. So James wants to help us. What helps, he says? Point number two, he says, a necessary perspective. A necessary perspective. And it's simple. And it punches and it's profound because he just turns to each one of us and he says, you are a mist. You're a mist. And we, we might have an image in our mind of like waking up here on a foggy morning and this like thick fog over this field and it slowly over the course of the day dissipates. It's even more brief than that. The original language here is a wisp of smoke off the edge 
of a flame. Imagine in your mind's eye that you're putting out a candle. That one little puff of smoke that goes up. You are a mist. It's over that quickly. We do not like to talk about death. We don't like to think about death. Most of us live our lives in such a way, if we're honest, that we really do not think it is ever going to happen to us. It's this theoretical idea. It's not really ever going to happen to us. You know, one of my uh, favorite commercials, I don't generally like ads, but this one gets me every time. It's probably one of those algorithms. It's, it, it knows me, right? Um, you have to take this by faith, but I do like to uh, bike ride sometimes. And, um, and so there's this ad that pops up for me all the time on YouTube for RX bars. It's a bar that I like to eat sometimes, right? And it's this young guy, and he's on a bike, and it's just this voiceover, and it says, you can't live forever. And then this guy changes into a guy who looks a little bit more like me, a little older, right? And he takes off on the bike and it says, but you can darn well try, right? Oh, I love that commercial. I totally love that commercial. It gets me every single time. Oh. But the reality is for each one of us, we have those things, right? Like every single day we're being bombarded with similar kinds of ad tailored to you. Whatever is your fear about growing old, whatever you're facing in terms of anxiety about death, the afterlife, right? It's, it's, it's whatever product they can sell you to convince you that this will extend the most natural process in human history. It'll stop it for you. You live longer. We're all chasing that. And yet we are in a time right now for the past two years, the average lifespan in America has dropped. 76 years. 76 years. James says, it's a mist. It's a mist. Some of you here, you're 10 years old. Some of you are here, you're in your teenage years. Maybe you're in your 20s, you're in your 30s. And you have heard so many times from people who are older than you just how time flies. It's going to go back faster than you think, right? And I've heard you say it out loud, or maybe it's just my kids. Okay, boomer, right? That's typically what we get. First of all, I'm not a boomer. Um, But second of all, here is the reality. You are going to blink your eyes, and you're going to be 40. And you're going to close your eyes again, you're going to wake up, and you're going to be 60. And you're going to do it one more time, and you're going to be sitting at a funeral, burying yet another friend or loved one. And the circle is going to get smaller and smaller, and you are going to be shocked. It just how fast it all happened. And what seems like a matter of a week, you go from being single, some of you, to being married, to being a parent, to being a grandparent. My first experience of death, uh, I was a young teenager. My stepfather passed away in our house. And I remember for years and years and years as I grew up, consoling myself. And he had lived a long life. And this is just naturally what happens to people when they get old. And friends, he died in the earliest part of his 40s. And the older I get, the younger that seems to me. James says, you're making all these plans without reference to God and without reference to time. You are a mist, he says. And how does that help us? What is is James getting at there for us to remember how short life is? How how does that help us in a practical sense? Well, some of us are um, uh, taking a counseling class right now. We're reading this book by this famous psychiatrist, 
Irving Yalom. And in that book, I was just shocked at how many chapters he dedicates to talking about death. And, and to give this illustration, he, he talks about how important it is to continually bring up death as much as you possibly can, pretty much, is what he says. In any, any way, shape, or form, just continue to bring it up and, and to find ways to talk about that in these counseling sessions. And he gives this illustration. He said, I would have my students go out into the local hospital, and they'd have to do interviews of people there. And most of the time, people would decline, right? They're sick, they're in the hospital. The last thing they want to do is be interviewed. He said, except, except every single year, without fail, when we went to the patients who are on hospice care in the wing of the hospital for those that were terminally ill with cancer, they knew their time was short. Every single one of them wanted to talk. Without fail, he said. They wanted to talk about their regrets, they wanted to warn others about this new perspective that approaching death had given them. And in the end of all that, Yalom writes, though the physicality of death destroys us, the idea of death may save us. Yalom is not a Christian, but Jack Miller is. And he says a similar thing. He got a little bit older in his own life, and he says, when we get our feet so mired down in time that we think it's eternal, we become subject to all the ups and downs, the vagaries of time. Our loves are so easily disturbed because we're loving only what is changing and finally will be replaced altogether. It's a healthy perspective for us to keep that in the forefront of our mind. In all the plans that we're making, we hold them loosely and we remind ourselves in intentional ways, this life is a mist. It gives us a new perspective how do we face this reality then? What's the alternative instead James gives us here? Instead, he says, understand God's providence. Hobie talked about that word earlier. Understand God's providence. Instead, James says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. I recognize that that can sound very fatalistic. Sometimes when we talk about God's providence, we talk about his sovereignty can be very fatalistic. It reminds me of times that I traveled in the Middle East and especially in Arab-speaking countries. There's a phrase that you often hear. It's actually commanded to be spoken in the Quran. Inshallah. Inshallah. It means if God wills. If God wills. Um, which sounds uh, very pietistic, but the reality is how it looks like in people's lives. And so there'd be a number of times we'd be at these absolutely insane uh, intersections, right? There is no police officers. There's no street lights. Things are just piled up. Some of you have traveled in places like that. And our guide, whoever our interpreter was, where there was, he would just step off the curb. And as he did so, inshallah, and just start walking, right? That was sort of the fatalistic mindset of it. It's just like, it wasn't a personal God. It wasn't a God that loved me. It wasn't a God that cared for me. It was just like, well, if God wills, God's going to do what God wants to do, right? I can do whatever I want to do as long as I go along and I just say, if God wills it, then I guess we just wait and see. It's not what James has in mind here for us. What do we mean? What do Christians mean? What does James himself mean when he says, if the Lord wills? What are we talking about when we talk about God's will? Well, first I'll say this. It is. We admit it. It's very mysterious. It's very mysterious. Right? Paul says that we are a people that look through a glass dimly. We're not, it's not fully revealed to us. We don't know the mind of God at all times. But more importantly, and I think this is the, the issue that James would hit on, God's will is not as mysterious as we want it to be. What do I mean by that? 
I would argue that we, myself included, have a very selective understanding of God's will. And this is what James is hitting at at the end here. He says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so often when we're talking about the will of God for our life, what we're, what we're really saying is that what we're most interested in, the things that God has not revealed and the things that we certainly can't know, and we just want to focus our attention on that rather than the things that he has made abundantly clear, that we know for sure. Um, illustration I give for that oftentimes is the number of years that I was in college ministry and you know as as it goes it's a lot of uh, it's a time period in people's lives lots of them are thinking about the biggest decisions of their life and the question that I would get the most is should I marry this person right like over 10 years I've probably heard that a hundred times and it was not infrequent that I have to take that young man by the shoulders and say look I do not know whether you should marry this person or not but I know that what you're doing sexually in your relationship is not God's will. <laughs> so let's start there, right? Focusing on the questions that are out there that we can't know when the things that God has revealed about himself are abundantly clear. We'd rather not think about those things. That's what Jack Miller said when he said, I find myself without, when I find myself without guidance from God, one of the first things I check out is the question of whether or not I want guidance from God. That's often the big issue for me. Put simply, why should God give me guidance when my mind is closed to some aspect to his will? So James is not opposed to planning. I'll keep saying that. He's not opposed to planning. But what he is opposed to for each one of us is planning without God, without reference to God first and foremost. This is the heart of what it says about planning all throughout the Proverbs, right? Trying to give us wisdom as people. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Nothing wrong with making plans. Making plans without reference to God is the issue. So we talk about God's will. If we can get a little nerdy for a moment, there's actually some different ways that the Bible talks about God's will. We talk about his sovereign will. That's the one that, that honestly, we don't need to worry about. Right? This, is, this is things like creation when God comes and says, let's make man in our image. Or when he speaks into the darkness, he says, let there be light. Nobody had a say on that. Didn't matter if we liked it or not. Didn't matter if we rebelled, kicked, screamed against it. It's going to happen. These are the things of God that he is going to make sure happens no matter what. Cannot be thwarted. God's sovereign will. His perfect will is what we've been talking about. His moral will. These are his Ten Commandments. That we are a people who have been created for a specific purpose. To glorify God. To love him and our neighbor. That's clear. Right? His will does not change. If I get stopped for speeding and suggest to the police officer that I thought it should be 85 through this school zone. He might say noted. Right? Here's your ticket. Right? Doesn't matter how I feel about these rules. Doesn't matter whether I like them or not or whether I think they're fair or not. They are his perfect moral will. And here's where we struggle then, what we call as permissive will, is the fact is I can break him, can't I? God is clear about his character, what he desires for us as people, but we would not have had a confession of sin this morning if God did not also have a permissive will. That he let me do foolish, rebellious, sinful things at times and pay the consequence for it. And, and within that realm, too, is another whole series of decisions that we make every single day that, that don't really fit in any of these categories. 
right? It's, it's the aspects of, of God's word that perhaps give us the most trouble sometimes is when there isn't a black or white. We sort of like it when it's, when it's a perfect will of God, right? And we know exactly what we need to do. But there's a whole category of how to live the Christian life that we don't have in the pages of Scripture, Right? So God, God can tell you through his perfect will, this is the kind of employee I want you to be. This is the kind of employer I want you to be. But we don't always know exactly what job we should take. Right? He, he can tell you, here, here, here's, what, here's what a godly wife, a godly husband looks like. But he can't tell you specifically in the pages of Scripture exactly who you should marry. And all sorts of principles in here about how to spend our money, how to steward our money. But I can't tell you whether specifically you should buy this house or that one or this product or that one. And for that, it requires wisdom. Wisdom. Because we assume in those areas outside of God's direct command, we refer back to that poem. I guess in those areas, God doesn't really care. And I am the captain of my fate. I can do what I want. And James says it's arrogance. So if the Lord wills, if there has been a point that James keeps driving home for us, if you have been with us for the last few weeks as we've been studying this, every single week at some point in the sermon, we talk about James' general theme of humility, 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 driving it home again and again. God exists and you are not him. Live like it. How is that for us then? How do we live as people growing in awareness of wisdom, Discerning the mind of God and the decisions that we're making, no matter how small, no matter how big, living in light of the fact that we serve a king who very much has a plan for our lives. And that life is short. Getting to know him. Getting to know him. Uh, My favorite illustration about discerning the will of God, I've probably used it here, and if you're here for the next few years, you'll hear it again and again. Um, Tim Keller gave it at one point. And he gives this illustration... uh, about the fact that you might have a child who's five or six years old, and if you're a parent, that child comes in to the door, and you're getting ready for dinner, and they say, hey, the kids are outside playing Frisbee. Can I go out and play for a little bit with them before dinner? And they said, and if that same kid calls you in 15 years, and they're 20 years old, and they're away at college, they say, hey, mom and dad, uh, some of the guys are throwing a Frisbee out on the quad. Is it okay if I go toss it with them before I go to the cafeteria for dinner? He says, as a parent, you are going to think you have done something fundamentally wrong. And he uses that by way to illustrate the kind of growing relationship that God intends for his children. That when it comes to these areas of life in which we we wrongly assume it's all up to me, what God is wanting is that over time, as we have read in his word, as we have discerned his character, as we have gotten to know him, growing in intimacy with him, that we would slowly, over time, and this is exactly what the scripture says, we would take on the mind of God. Our affections would be his affections. We would love what he loved. We would hate what he hates. We, we would know in the same exact way that those of you that have been married for, for a long time, you might sit down at a restaurant, and even if your spouse is not there yet, you can order off the menu for him. You know what they want, Right? You can make decisions sometimes without having to consult them all the time because you have been transformed over time. Your own affections and your own perspective. You consider who God is, what he has commanded, and you get to know him. You make decisions that reflect his will. We grow up and we draw close. As one writer said, we cannot remain adolescents forever. God's will is for us to become adults. 
And the heart of being an adult is the capacity to put away the toys, put on the love and joy and peace of Christ. Be transformed by the God who has saved you. And if that sounds like death to you, as you think about your future plans, you think about the things uh, 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 that are going on in your own life right now, maybe the big, the little decisions you have to make, if it sounds like death to you to submit all of that, to come like an offering with open hands to God and say, take it, take it all here, shape me, change me. I want to make decisions in light of who you are. I want to submit my plans to you. If that sounds like death instead of freedom, then maybe you don't yet know Christ. It's just that simple. Haven't come to understand what kind of king he is. A final story maybe to help us get there about decision making. You probably have not heard the name Kempton Bunton. I'd be very surprised if anybody had. He was a 57-year-old disabled unemployed bus driver in England who was responsible for the greatest art heist in British history. He stole a Goya painting called the Duke of Wellington from the National Gallery in 1961. He confessed to the crime. He was arrested, he was put on trial, and he was eventually imprisoned. But here was the interesting thing about the story. 2012, 50 years after the crime, it finally came to light that it was not, in fact, Kempton who stole the painting, but it was his 20-year-old son, John. His young son, barely 20 years old, right? Not making wise decisions. Foolish, reckless, illegal. This would have destroyed his entire life. And he was told by his father, I'll take the fall for you. So it's a son who watched the police handcuff his father, escort him from his house. A son who watched from from the balcony of the trial for weeks on end as his father took a blame for a crime he didn't commit and a son who visited his father week after week in prison, knowing his own guilt. That's how that played out for years of that boy's life. Now I want you to consider this with me then. All right, so given all that we've talked about today, do you think that for the rest of his life, when that young man, John, came to his father with a need for advice or wisdom or counsel, that he ever had to wonder about his father's love for him? Did he have to wonder, "Uh, you know, dad told me to do this, dad's given me this kind of advice, but I don't know about his motives. Maybe he's guided by this sinister desire to destroy my life. You think that when his father told him which direction to go, his son assumed it came from some egotistical need to control him. But for so many of us today, that is exactly what we think about God. We don't ask him for guidance because ultimately we do not trust him. We don't want to know his will because we don't want to follow him. And James says that is arrogance and he would ask us today, knowing your own heart, why in the world do you trust yourself more? That if we could be very honest this morning, maybe more to the point, if we could look at today, we were to talk openly about the piles of decisions that we have made in our own life without seeking the counsel of God. 
How is that going for you? Friends, biblical witness tells us that when the first Adam stood in the Garden of Eden, as we have said earlier, he declared, I am the master of my fate. And when the final Adam came, Jesus Christ prayed alone in the Garden, again, the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And when the first Adam stood at the base of the tree and made that rebellious choice that sent our entire world into darkness, he whispered, I am the captain of my fate. I am the one who shepherds my soul. And the final Adam, Jesus Christ, came to the tree. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, we serve a God who paid the ultimate price for your foolishness, for your lack of wisdom, your rebellious heart that's constantly urging you to simply go it alone. And James says, there's a better way, friends. There is a better way. That your life is a mist and it'll be over faster than any of us can imagine. And he urges us, every single one of us that names the name of Christ, to use the few years we have getting to know the one who is inviting you into eternity. Get to know him and his unfathomable grace towards us. Learn to trust his voice until we all together can sing with the hymnist, Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he lived below. Let's pray. Father, it's a hard word. It comes to us from our brother James this morning. We ask, Father, that you might touch our hearts in a significant way this morning, Lord. We, all of us, every single one of us, even probably while the sermon was being preached, Lord, our minds raced ahead to plans, to decisions, to weighty things in this room this morning, Lord, in which we need your guidance. Lord, and we, thought, we just confess. We confess that we haven't consulted you. We haven't even thought once about you. We have lived as a people who are without a God. Forgive us. Draw close to us, Lord God, and in the little and the big things that are going on around us, Lord, in which we need your counsel, Father, will you come and will you be kind? Will you be generous with your wisdom towards us, Lord, that we might honor you and come into line with the purposes that you have, not only for us, but for the world, for your son's glory. And in his name we pray. Amen.